for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. This is the No-Fly Zone with Greg Mayberry on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the No-Fly Zone. Uh, I'm Greg Mayberry, your host uh, for the next hour or so. On Wednesday this coming week, we'll be commemorating the 60th anniversary of the murder of America's 35th president, JFK. Now, with the prospect of his nephew, Robert Kennedy Jr., becoming president the following year, uh, the latter's own father, of course, being assassinated less than five years after JFK was, after he was uh, running for office or whilst he was running for office, there's possibly no better time to revisit this most consequential of events. For his part, RFK Jr. has not been shy about fingering the CIA for having an involvement in his uncle's murder, not to, not to mention his father's own murder. But in reflecting back on the events of 60 years ago, today we'll be looking beyond the CIA's well-documented involvement uh, as to who else might have been complicit and what might have been also the key motivations for such involvement. We're speaking here, of course, about the state of Israel and that of Kennedy's successor, LBJ, as well, which we'll hopefully get some time to uh, bring into the picture as well. But on the same subject, today we're going to be focusing on the events of recent weeks in Palestine, uh, the extraordinary polarisation of opinion that we've experienced in recent times appears to have reached a whole new level with the Hamas attack on Israel on October the 7th and Israel's ongoing response. Now, as with many other divisive issues, what's missing from much of that opinion is an informed understanding of the history behind these events and these developments and a deeper insight into some of the real forces at play that are driving them. Now, for the past few years, I've been attempting to further my own understanding of an insight into the so-called Palestinian-Israel conflict by looking more deep, deeply into that history. And so doing then provide, hopefully for others seeking the same, some useful historical context and perspective. Uh, and one person who has helped me greatly is my guest today is uh, in this endeavour is French filmmaker, uh, Laurent Guino. He's also an author, a scholar and a writer. He was born in France in 1960, has an engineering degree, and also holds a PhD degree in medieval studies. It's fair to say that Lorenz's work has been of great value to my own research and therefore understanding and will continue to do so. In fact, he's authored some of the most important analyses of the JFK assassination and his brother uh, on Israel and Zionism and on the events of 9-11, along with uh, the an understanding of America's deep state or the global deep state, we probably should refer to it as. Now, he's been researching America's deep history for many years now and is a major contributor to the UNS Review, one of my go-to websites for deep, authentic insights into our history and the real stories behind the latest news and developments. That's the UNS Review, that's U-N-Z dot R-E-V i-e-w that's unsreview.com uh so you will find my guests um work uh, on that site uh on the uns review his books include from yahweh design jealous god chosen people promised land and the clash of civilizations the unspoken kennedy truth 
and he's also written a book of essays on Jewish power. He has written extensively on the events of 9-11, again, as with the Kennedy assassinations, challenging the official narratives with a decidedly revisionist uh, perspective. Laurent, welcome to the program again. Hello, Greg. Thank you very much for having me again. It's a pleasure. Look, I just want to start out today's uh, chat with talking about the conspiracy theory construct, because I think that'll lead us very much into uh, not just uh, the JFK assassination, but many of the other um, elements of the deep state that we talk about uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how they've been presented to the public and how they've actually been covered up. Um, can you give us a bit of an understanding of the conspiracy theory construct as it's now used? Because I think a lot of people still, uh, whenever they hear that phrase, uh, they kind of uh, react quite, uh, <laughs> how shall we put it, uh, not in a very uh, a good way. If you're called a conspiracy theorist when you're trying to sort of talk to people about certain elements of history that aren't discussed in our history books, uh, it's, it's a bit of a... Um, it certainly shuts down people's uh, conversations very quickly. As a mm. psychological operation, and indeed as a tool of political thought or political thought control, you'd have to agree it has a pretty impressive track record of success. Can you give us some background on how this term came to be weaponized and politicized over the years? Well, it seems that the, the term conspiracy theory came uh, was actually first coined in a, in a document from the CIA I think it must have been around in, in the in the end of the 1960s, uh, and it was used to well to say you know how to fight against conspiracy theories. That's, I think that was the first time it was used in a in a document, and then it became, as you said, some kind of a way to shut people up. Uh, but you know, and I remember uh, you know it must have uh, become widespread around ten years ago, or maybe a bit before. Uh, after 9/11, uh, yeah, after 9/11, I think it became a really a big, a big term used to to try to denigrate uh, anybody who questioned the official narrative. But as time passed, you know, it became so common, so banal that. Uh, you know, it became so meaningful. And uh, in France, at least, and I suppose in America too, it, it slowly became so also intimately connected with the term anti-Semitic. Yes. <laughs> because <laughs> for some reason, always people fear that any conspiracy theory will ultimately lead to Israel or to something connected to Israel. So those two terms have become somehow uh, used uh, almost inter interchangingly. Yeah. And uh, and that's funny in itself. That's interesting. But finally, it's kind of um, backfiring because you know many people start to say, "Well, I, yeah, I'm a conspiracy a conspiracy theorist. I'm interested in conspiracies because conspiracy is what uh, history is made of. I mean, to a large part. So uh, you know, I don't mind to be called a conspiracy theorist. Me, I mean, uh, I don't see any problem with it. <laughs> I, I'm a bit like that myself. I kind of wear it as a badge of honour. It's water off the duck's mm. back for me. But, you know, you mentioned sort of um, the connection with sort of, you know, people saying, oh, you're an anti-Semite. It also fits in with other sort of catchphrases that he used to shut down 
any kind of a conversation that challenges the narrative about any particular issue. I mean, you're a climate change denier is another one. Uh, yeah. You're an anti-vaxxer is another one, which we, you know, obviously have been inundated with, um, you know, in the last four years since the advent of of COVID. You know, the, the yeah. worst things that could be said about anybody throughout COVID was, well, you're an anti-vaxxer. Uh, but yeah, of course, it's, to go yeah, it's a way to put people in in boxes and make make uh, you know people feel oh this is a, some kind of a cult or some kind of a you know religious sect you know they have a special belief which doesn't make any sense it's it's a kind of way to you know uh, deny the fact that people are thinking by themselves it's uh, yeah. And again, as I said, you know, I mean, I I think this has been extraordinarily effective. Whatever we might like to think about it, it certainly has done uh, an incredible job in undermining, you know, um, people's willingness, if you like, to explore these alternative uh, theories about what actually happens both in our history and what actually is taking place in the present. I mean, I mean, how damaging are these kinds of tactics to our understanding of history? You know, you're an anti-Semite if you criticise Israel. You're a climate change denier if you question the, um, you know, the global warming narrative. You know, what? How damaging is that kind of thing to a more open uh, uh, presentation or an understanding of our history? Well. <clears throat> I don't know. I think um, you know it's a, it's it creates a division between people, but I don't think it really um, affects you know our freedom to think and to share and to talk. Uh, we understand today. More, many people understand that the mainstream media's are really lying all the time about every issue. So, you know, I think the number of people who are starting to feel that we don't even need to 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 consider what they say and we you know whatever insults they use to denigrate uh, you know any kind of thinking any kind of alternative thinking has has less and less impact i feel at least on me it doesn't have any impact and i i suppose on most people who are thinking by themselves and getting informed out of the mainstream uh, media are not really affected by that yeah it is interesting though uh, i still find um you know that you mentioned the word division it's certainly been uh, very effective at creating that division we saw that with ukraine uh and of course we're now seeing it with uh the situation in palestine um and it's what is interesting that i find is that you know people who are otherwise quite intelligent informed insightful people will still rattle off opinions and views about things uh, mm. that really it's clear they have bought a particular narrative and they haven't been willing to sort of go beyond that and look to other to other sources but i want to get on to um the obviously the jfk assassination and i read your most recent 
uh, article, which you, in fact, the, the two most recent articles that you've published on UNS Review, which I highly recommend people uh, go to and and read these articles. Again, Laurent Guino is L-A-U-R-E-N-T-G-U-Y-E-N-O-T, uh, the key words for the author, and UNS Review, that's U-N-Z-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please, listeners, make an effort to go along to the UNS Review and check out Lawrence's two most recent articles. And he has most of his uh, written work is, is published on the UNS Review and perhaps elsewhere as well. But that is certainly the, probably the first port of call. But the two most recent articles, Lorent, I'd like to talk to you about. <clears throat> Um, in, I'm going to quote uh, from one of the the, the first articles, um, which I think was the Kennedy assassination CIA did it theorists are covering for Israel. And we'll come back to that article in a moment, but I just want to uh, take a quick quote from that. We have to go to a break in a few minutes, but and we'll continue it after the break. But this is a quote that you said, and I this really struck home to me big time, uh, as did the whole article itself. And you say, obviously, the assassination of Kennedy changed profoundly, not only America, but Israel too. No single death has had so profound an effect on world history as Kennedy's, quote, unquote. Can you mm. uh, flesh that out a little bit and say, you know, why you think that? Well, the more I, I study the Kennedy story, it's been uh, almost 12 years now. So uh, I started at the 50, for the 50th anniversary, my first book, JFK 9-11, and now it's the 60th anniversary. So I've been really thinking, studying, reading about it uh, for 10 years. And the more I do, the more I, I realize how deeply it has changed the world. Uh, it certainly has changed America in a very deep way, and uh, even in a spiritual way, I would say, because it created some kind of strange feeling that, uh, um, you know, something terrible happened, but people don't know exactly what happened or, you know, or why it happened. So it kind of put all the American people in a very strange psychological uh, state of uh, uncertainty, angst and uh, denial also. But in fact, uh, it, I say it, it affected uh, Israel very deeply too, because it somehow changed the leadership. You know, as as I explain again, and as mm. is well known, David Ben Gurion resigned uh, just on the day he was receiving a letter, a very strong letter from Kennedy. So uh, he uh, about Dimona, you know, asking to yes. for a visit of the nuclear plant in Israel, and instead of refusing, he just resigned. And uh, I was wondering for a long time, did he resign because he kind of, you know, went underground into some kind of deep state level to organize Kennedy's assassination? But on the other hand, I think it's more like he, he resigned because he wanted to get out of history because he, he left uh, the problem to another kind of Israeli leaders coming from the, the hardest uh, kind of Israeli leaders who believed in assassinations, who believed in uh, in terror. And so uh, these people uh, took over somehow the Israeli government and later they became uh, Israeli prime ministers. And I'm talking, talking about Yitzhak Yich Yich Shamir yeah. in particular, whom uh, can be suspected to have organized actually the Kennedy assassination rather than Ben-Gurion himself. 
in fact, I came to think that there are three kinds of Israeli leaders. Uh, the you know Ben Gurion is of course the father of the nation, and he yes. represents uh, an Israeli leadership who who believes in war. He believes the uh, yes. Arabs don't understand anything except violence. So war is uh, is the answer. That's why he needed the and nuclear deterrence also. Yes, there was another kind of uh, Israeli leader like Moshe Sharet who believed in diplomacy, who wanted yes. Israel to be a, a regular, a, a normal country. You know, in the in the concert of nations. And then on the right side there is. All these people coming from the Irgun and the Lehi, yeah. the Lehi or uh, the Stern Gang, who who practiced terrorism from the 1930s or 1940s, especially against the British yes. or against the Arabs, and they became prime minister. Menahem Begin became prime minister. So, uh, and now we have a uh, you know this liquid type of uh, uh, leadership, which is actually coming directly from there. Yeah. So. Israel we'll, became the monster that we see today. We'll come back to that. Uh, we're on some very interesting uh, ground here. We have to go to a quick break. You're listening to uh, the No Fly Zone on TNT Radio. I'm Greg Mabry. I'm speaking with Laurent Guino, who is a French author and filmmaker. We'll be right back shortly after this break. TNT Radio's Katie Hopkins. Regardless of your own personal opinion, I find the moral clarity of what he says here to be both refreshing and having sat recently with Jewish friends just back in from Israel, someone standing and saying this, I think is precisely the kind of language people are looking for. I want to make clear Israel's position regarding the ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism. There is a time for peace and there is a time for war and Israel will stand. And uh, clearly I've received, uh, and I will receive, and I will continue to uh, receive a criticism for being a major supporter of Israel and people's right to have one nation state when Arab countries have 22 or 23, depending on which way you divide them. But I think clarity is needed. Katie Hopkins on TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live Hello listeners, welcome back to the No Fly Zone. I'm speaking today with uh, French author and filmmaker Laurent Guino. Uh, I highly recommend his most recent articles uh, on the UNS review. Uh, is the Kennedy assassination. CIA did it, theorists uh, covering for Israel. 
another article called Israel's Biblical Psychopathy, which was absolutely fascinating uh, for me, particularly looking at the sort of uh, historical uh, and biblical uh, connections to uh, current um, uh, Israeli actions in the Middle East. And the last one that the, the the last one is the Gospel of Gaza: What We Must Learn from Netanyahu's Bible Lessons, which is a very very intriguing title. So once again, people, I'm speaking with the author of those three articles that I do highly recommend that you follow up. Uh, Laurent, let's go back to um, um, uh, the JFK thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to just talk about, uh, because it does have, in my view, connections to some things that were said today by one of the Israeli cabinet ministers, but if we accept the, the notion that uh, one of Israel's biggest motives um, for removing or having Kennedy removed from office was his utter resistance to Israel getting nuclear weapons. Um, can you just give us a bit of an idea of, of, of why or how that played out? You mean how that tied out with, with what? With, um, well, with what, what's happening today? Or Well, we'll come back to what's happening today. Maybe I should rephrase the question. That was considered to be the main reason for why. Oh, yeah. Can you just mm -hmm. give us a little bit more of a background on that? Okay. What, uh -huh, you mentioned yeah. Demona, of course, Demona being the actual nuclear uh, uh, place, the um, the uh, location, which yeah. was where Israel was, uh, you know, preparing its uh, nuclear weapons facilities. Kennedy mm -hmm. was very much against that. He resisted yeah. it. And uh, just give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, well, maybe the good point, the good uh, place to start is to to start with uh, uh, the notion that JFK, President Kennedy, was uh, was uh, determined to uh, initiate a process of denuclearization to abolish nuclear weapons uh, throughout the world. Yeah. and this you can you can learn from James Douglas's great book called JFK and the Unspeakable. Uh, James Douglas explains very clearly and in a very moving way actually how Kennedy's major uh, fight in his life you know his uh, sense of uh, um, his sense of mission was to abolish nuclear weapons and actually actually he went very far he was talking about to the united nations uh, general assembly for example as early as 1961 and then later in 1963 and uh, in a, a few famous speeches uh, and uh, notably his uh, famous peace speech at the american uh, yes. university in 63. He, he was yeah, he wanted to move the world and move uh, public opinion in America in that direction, abolishing nuclear weapon. So when, um, unfortunately, James Douglas doesn't mention anything at all about Israel, which is strange in itself, because one major problem that Kennedy had was with Israel. He wanted to reverse nuclear proliferation, and then he had to deal with this country who who wanted to become one new nuclear state 
yeah. in secret, uh, Israel. So Ben Gurion met uh, Kennedy in 1961. Uh, that's the only time they met. And uh, we have the script of that meeting, and it's very clear that uh, Ben Gurion is trying to ask Kennedy, "Well, can't you just pretend you don't know what's going on in Dimona?" Of course, I'm 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 paraphrasing, yeah. that. but it's very strange because yeah. Kennedy wants to tell him, but without telling him directly that he knows he's lying. He knows Ben Gurion yeah. is lying. He's telling him that Dimona is just uh, uh, a research facility to study how to desalinize the world seawater and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy doesn't buy it, uh, but uh, Ben Gurion is hoping he pretends to to <laughs> to believe it. But Kennedy uh, stood firm in 1961, and then 1963 it became one of his priority again. He wrote to David Ben Gurion very strong letters. Uh, demanding uh, immediate inspections uh, of the or visit in the diplomatic term uh, of the plan to make sure uh, it's uh, uh, not a weapon factory to, yeah. fa to fabricate. So, uh, yes, I mean, if you study the history of uh, Israel and the mentality of David Ben-Gurion and all the Israeli leadership, uh, you have to remember that at that time they, uh, they were really scared because e Egypt and Syria and Iraq had formed a, uh, an Arab Republic. And That's of course, correct. Arab leaders tend to speak, uh, you know, uh, very strong words to their own population and they declared they want to live free, they want to free Palestine. So, you know, uh, Ben Gurion was absolutely convinced that without the nuclear weapon, without the possibility of nuclear deterrence, they will soon be, uh, you know, destroyed by Arab nations. So for him, it was a, an absolute necessity. And for Kennedy, it was an absolute um, uh, impossibility to let Israel build the nuclear weapon. And Kennedy, as the son of his father, knew how much uh, Israelis cannot be trusted to be uh, peacemakers. Uh, he, he, he was, uh, you know, that's something that people who study Kennedy don't understand, mo mostly don't want to ignore, actually, that John Kennedy was very much his father's uh, son. Yeah. So, even though he worked with Jewish people a lot, he kind of had had an understanding of what Israel really is. So, you know, this was a stalemate and uh, and as I said, Ben Gurion resigned, and uh, and I believe, st having studied this in the in the in the footsteps of Michael Collins Piper, I have to yes. say, I, I have to, we have to mention Michael Collins Piper Absolutely. because he was really the the he did an incredibly you know uh, amount of work to to explore the Israeli trail, and he wrote a very big book about seven hundred pages with all kinds of uh, uh, evidence that uh, Israel was the prime mover in the Kennedy assassination, which doesn't mean that the CIA or other elements were not involved. But, uh, you know, and so I I kind of, I, I wrote a short, I wanted to write a short book rather than a big, rather than a big one, because I wanted to go to the essence and the most, and the strongest evidence. And the strongest evidence, uh, maybe we'll get into it, you know, is uh, Jack Ruby, Lyndon Johnson, and James Angleton. And uh, with those three person, you you can uh, you can already have a clear idea of who is behind the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, you mentioned Michael Collins Piper, and I'm very pleased you did because before I encountered your work, it was actually 
Michael Collins Piper's own work uh, that uh, brought Israel up on my radar because like you, I had I began around about the same time to start exploring the whole JFK thing. And certainly James Douglas' book that you mentioned earlier on, his work was one of the first books that I had, had read. Um, but I came, of course, to then formulate sort of a more expanded view of, of the whole Kennedy assassination, and that's nothing if not complex. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, moving parts to the um, the whole Kennedy assassination uh, construct as well. But uh, Michael Collins Piper, for those people who, uh, again, want to explore Israel's connection to the uh, Kennedy assassination, you could know, you could, that's probably as good a place to start as any. Uh, certainly, by all means, follow up on Lorenz's work, but uh, he has duly acknowledged Michael Collins Piper's work, and I can attest myself to. Um, uh, to how brilliant that work is. Interestingly, on that, Laurent, I before probably about three weeks before he died, he died quite suddenly and and uh, sadly very at a relatively early age. I'd sent him an email wanting to connect with him at the time, and unfortunately, I never heard back from him. Uh, I had hoped that I would have done, but obviously that wasn't going to be the case. I'm sure we would have had a, a great developed a great connection because I had a a thing of contacting and connecting with people who are sort of writing on very similar subjects. Yeah, so Michael Collins Piper's work, people explore it. It is is fantastic. His book on uh, whether you believe his theory or not is by the by, but the fact is he does fill in a lot of gaps. He also talks, Laurent, about, and you yourself mentioned in one of those articles you've just read recently about the mafia. Of course, people think of the mafia as being the Italians. And of course, you know, that's the Hollywood image that we do have of the mafia. But in fact, um, the Jewish mafia is another beast altogether. And in fact, according to Michael Collins Piper's work, they actually uh, held sway over much of the Italian mafia. What was your take on the mafias involved? And of course, they had links with the CIA. They had links with, uh, you know, with various other groups, the Cuban exiles, for example. What was your take mm -hmm. on the mafia's role in the Kennedy assassination? Well, yes, Michael Piper spends a lot of time uh, studying uh, Mayor Lansky, That's who correct. was the um, you know the, the head of the crime syndicate in America, and uh, he, this figure is not very well known. But uh, there are quite many books, not only Michael Piper's. He relies on other books. To, uh, yeah showing that he was really the the the, the big boss of the uh, of the mafia what we call the mafia organized crime and uh, the jewish element was much stronger than the italian or sicilian element and in yeah. fact recently i came across a, a quote from lansky himself I think, or from uh, Lucky Luciano, I think more, uh, yeah. from, uh, uh, explaining that actually Lensky wanted the mafia to be identified as an Italian group. So he pushed this narrative about the Sicilian mafia because he wanted to remain in the shadow. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, in my articles, I don't get too much into, you know, the Mayor Lensky thing because there is, I don't find uh, there is a direct connection. The connection to Mayor Lansky in the JFK case is more indirect. What what is clear is that the 
there was a very strong connection between what we may call the Jewish mafia or or uh, some people call it the uh, mishpuka. I think it's yeah. a Yiddish term for the family. So yeah. it's kind of a, it corresponds to the mafia term yeah. for Italians. Uh, there was a very strong connection between these these networks of Jewish gangsters and <clears throat> the terror groups that started to be very active in the 1940s That's in correct, Israel, yeah. uh, which I talked uh, about before. And they were very active in smuggling weapons to Israel. Uh, and one person who was very much into that network was Jack Ruby, whose mm -hmm. real name was Jack Rob Rubinstein, That's the correct. man who killed the who killed the man who supposedly killed Kennedy. That's so correct. if you want to study Kennedy uh, assassination, I always say, well, you know, unfortunately, we don't know who pulled the trigger. We don't know the names of the snipers who killed Kennedy. Uh, we know Oswald was not the killer, or at least not the only killer. But and we so we don't know we don't have oswald to to question him but we know who killed oswald so we yes, know we who do. silenced uh the the patsy and in this case prevented people from uh, finding out so jack ruby is a very important person to study in the jfk assassination and in fact in many books there there are very few books there's only one book really about ja uh, jack ruby it's uh, written by Seth Kentor. it was written in yes. the early 70s i think and it's very informative and but most people don't want to get too much into jack ruby and james douglas for example never even mentions his real name you know yeah. so people say well jack ruby he's a mafia a chicago mafia so well you imagine he's a sicilian but when you hear his real name then you start to think well probably not no. and if you dig a little, little deeper you understand he belongs not to the sicilian mafia at all but to a mafia which was very connected to menahem begin yeah. uh, through actually um jack ruby's mentor was mickey cohen mickey cohen was a, a gangster involved in chicago and Hollywood and uh, connected to uh, Bugsy Siegel, Bugsy Siegel, who was uh, heading the Murder Incorporated, Murder yeah. Inc. So actually, the Jewish mafia was the most violent mafia. You know, they created mm. the Murder Inc. and so on. Mm. So there is a direct connection between Jack Ruby, Mickey Cohen, and. Menahem Begin. We know Mickey Cohen worked directly and met directly Menahem Begin because Begin came to to America. I don't remember exactly what what time, but uh, he was at at that time uh, on uh, on the list of uh, on the British list of uh, terrorists. Uh, you know, wanted for for yeah. terrorism, but he came to America and uh, and uh, he probably connected with all kind of gangsters for organizing uh, sm the smuggling of weapons. Uh, and yeah. of mon of money and so on. So there there is a direct connection here between uh, the people who organized JFK's assassination and the Jewish mafia connected to the um, terror and assassination um, teams of uh, of Israel. That's the Ergon and all of these various groups. Yeah. That. Um, you know, were initially they uh, carried out terror attacks against the um, the British authorities under the mandate, and then of course they started terrorizing the Palestinians themselves, particularly in the wake of of Israel's establishment. 
Uh, we've got yeah. to go to a, a quick break in a couple of minutes, but just um, it's interesting, though, those connections. Again, what you've just expounded upon points again to the extraordinary complexity, if you like, of the JFK assassination story. And um, do you think now we're reaching the point, and I would argue that your most recent article um, has come very, very close Laurent, uh, to really bringing um, the story together in one piece that people can actually get their head around. Now, this would only be, of course, for people who have you know, a reasonable amount of background because you can't encapsulate, even though your article was quite long, we're talking about a 10,000-word article, which you know, as long as it was, it was just, for me, very, very fascinating. Do you think we're actually reaching the point now in the 60th anniversary year of having a real handle on why Kennedy was murdered and who were the main players behind it? Well, yeah, I think so for different reasons. One reason that people are starting to to see what Israel really is. And I was just going to mention one important book that came out a few years ago was uh, Ronan Bergman, a book called Rise and Kill First. And this he documents the history of targeted assassination by Israel. I and Israel... By, by Mossad, yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. the world, and particularly focusing on Israel's nuclear policy. Anybody standing in the way of Israel's uh, need for the nuclear weapon, and uh, anybody helping Arab or Iran, Arab countries or Iran to get the nuclear bomb would be targeted, and hundreds of people, scientists or politicians or diplomats, have been killed for yeah. that very reason. So it makes full sense, you know, once you know this. And this book is really mainstream. It's published. It's translated in many different uh, countries. Uh, makes and clear it, the, the 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 ideology and the strategy of Israel regarding uh, its uh, own uh, nuclear defense. Exactly. It's important to emphasize there too that Bergman is Jewish. Um, he is, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He, I'm pretty sure he is. And of course, there are as a lot of people probably aren't aware. There are many many Jewish people who are very, very critical of Israel on any number of levels. And oh, yeah. Plenty of work. And this is something that doesn't always get a lot of airplay. We've got to go to a quick mm. break, uh, and we'll be right sure. back, Laurent, to take up this conversation. You're listening All to right. No Fly Zone on TNT Radio. I'm Greg Mabry. I'm speaking with Laurent Guino. We'll be back shortly after this break. The climate agenda is a national security risk. Where do you hear this? From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to state refineries from foreign countries. California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future. 
Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. You're listening to the No Fly Zone with Greg Maybury on today's News Talk Radio TNT. Uh, welcome back. Uh, I'm speaking today with Laurent Guino, French author and filmmaker. I'll just do a quick recap on where you can locate uh, some uh, information about Laurent and his very, very important work. The UNS Review, that's U-N-Z-R, some uh, information about Laurent and his very, very important work. The UNS Review, that's U-N-Z-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Uh, Laurent Guino is L-A-U-R-E-N-T-G-U-Y-E-N-O-T is his surname. Please uh, check out his work. A couple of other things that I wanted to mention here in relation to this. Uh, uh, Laurent has also produced a couple of uh, documentaries, uh, Israel and the Assassinations of the Kennedy Brothers and 9-11 and Israel's Great Game are two uh, of Lawrence's films that I would highly recommend that you chase down. There is an enormous amount of information there about what I consider to be, you know, two of the most pivotal seminal events in American history. That's 9-11 and the JFK assassination. So please follow up Lawrence's work. He's doing some very, very important work. Uh, Laurent, one of the things that uh, I picked up on this week, and it does hark back to um, um, uh, Kennedy's resistance to Israel getting nuclear weapons, you no doubt probably heard this week that, or I think it was in the last week or so, one of the Israeli uh, cabinet ministers, so I don't think he was actually a high-level cabinet minister, but certainly he was the heritage minister, uh, a fellow whose name I think was Amichai Elihu. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct, but he was um, he was asked um, the, the question um, um, as to what options might have been on the table, asked in an interview whether he was suggesting that some kind of nuclear bomb might be dropped on Gaza. He said that's one way, quote, unquote. Now, given JFK's opposition to uh, to Israel having nuclear weapons, uh, this would be, in fact, one of the key reasons why JFK did not want Israel to have nukes. Uh, we sort of reached that point where, you know, Kennedy saw that, you know, Israel having nukes was, let's face it, not a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh... You did hear that uh, that re- report, did you? I, I did. I think uh, that um, uh, government uh, official you you mentioned was actually sanctioned by Netanyahu for he was. speaking about the news. Yes, he was. Which is a very for a very simple reason is that although everybody throughout the world knows that Israel has uh, nuclear weapons and we don't know exactly how many, but quite a lot, uh, it's still uh, officially not. Uh, it's still not official, and people are not supposed to talk about it. Not even supposed to ask 
ask about it. And uh, even journalists who dare, you know, put the topic on uh, in uh, in their interview or whatever are will be quickly banned and uh, and lose uh, their job. So uh, this, uh, of course, it's all calculated. But it's interesting because it becomes uh, almost an official trademark of Israel that Israel is a you know, a professional liar. Everybody knows they have the nuclear bomb, but they still pretend they don't because they don't want to sign any treaty. So they are the only nuclear yeah. power, nuclear state without, uh, who hasn't signed, you know, the non-proliferation uh, treaty. So as in every other situation, Israel believes they are special. The international law doesn't apply to them. International rules doesn't apply to them. Exactly. Normal morality doesn't apply to them because they are the chosen people uh, somehow, which uh, people uh, interpret in different ways. But there is this very strong sense that they are special and uh, therefore they don't have to play by the rules. It, it's interesting. You've, you've delved into um, a lot of the, the biblical background, um, uh, the biblical factors that uh, are driving uh, Israel, that basically not only the biblical factors that are driving at the moment, but the biblical factors that have led to the creation of Israel. And I found some of the stuff that you're writing extraordinarily fascinating. I had to hark back to, to my very vague memories of my own Sunday school teaching. And some of it I remembered and others, other bits I didn't, but I found uh, for those who do want to have that background and understand the biblical connections uh, in in respect of Israel's creation and the way that it operates and functions on the world stage, can you give people a bit of an idea of 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 uh, the significance of that and um, and 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 just a little bit of background on it as well and the beliefs of the the leaders of Israel, how the biblical kind of uh, belief. Uh, drives their current actions on the world stage. Yeah, well, that was the main theme of my book, From Yahweh to Zion, because I realized that uh, from the very beginning, uh, at least from the time of Ben-Gurion, the Bible was became the narrative, the national narrative of Israel. So uh, the Bible for, for most, for many Jews, is not just a religious book, but it's, you know, it's uh, the story of their people. So everything in what happens in the, in, uh, in the history of the Jewish people, they interpret through the biblical patterns. And yeah. We are invited actually to do that by Netanyahu himself, who has been quoting the Bible again and again, and recently at least three or four times, and uh, especially saying in Hebrew, of course, because uh, it's a little bit uh, more difficult to say this directly uh, to the world. But uh, uh, he may he he said to his people, to the Israelis, "We are remembering Amalek," and that's that's, a, that's uh, directly coming from the Bible. And if you know a little bit your Bible you know that Amalek is one of the people who was standing in the way of uh, the Hebrews um, moving into the uh, promised land That's and correct. so Yahweh ordered Moses to wipe them out uh, every one of them men women children and even uh, <laughs> even the animals just in case and so and the story is funny uh, funny is uh, tragic but uh, funny in a sense because uh, Saul King Saul was ordered by Yahweh to kill all the Amalekites 
prophets, but he spared the king. So he disobeyed uh, Yahweh because he had pity, <clears throat> he had mercy on one man, and Yahweh has no mercy on anyone. So he was Saul was uh, uh, punished by uh, the you know the God of Israel, Yahweh, yeah. for that, and he lost the kingship, which was passed on to David. So that's a very interesting story, and it's really impressive to have Netanyahu quote that story, and he quotes also the book of Joshua, which is uh, a book, you know, where Joshua is asked by the God of Israel to genocide one people after another. Again, yeah. men, children, women, everybody, um, you know, one city after another. So I think it's important for people, and, and it's difficult for Christians in general to understand this because they they they, they want to say, well, but Netanyahu and Jewish people in general are not reading the Bible correctly. We have to read it through the New Testaments. So I'm trying to say to Christian, okay, fine, you, you can read it the way you want, but it's important to understand that uh, Jewish people in general read the Bible as it is written. They don't really uh, try to project or uh, impose on top of it some allegorical uh, understanding or interpretation. Yeah. They just, just read the stories and they read that God himself orders them to destroy any nation that stands in their way. So that's the biblical mindset of the leadership of Israel. And it doesn't make any difference, I'm trying to explain and I try to show, it doesn't make much difference if they really believe in God or not. Yeah, You know, in some way, that's something a little bit difficult to understand, but it's very striking that some Jews who claim they don't believe in God still believe God chose the Jews in some way. Yeah, ben Gurion was very typical in that, in that case, yeah. actually. There was an Elan Pap who is a Jewish author that I'm very fond of, his work. Uh, I think he once said that um, uh, even for those uh, Israelis who don't believe in God, they still believe God promised them Israel uh, or promised them Palestine. As, yeah. Uh, and, and that, but you touch on this again in, in that article, Israel's Biblical Psychopathy, Mm. which, again, I found not just from a religious or spiritual or biblical point of view, but just from um, the point of view of looking at of, at power and, and how great powers, and, of course, nobody would argue that Israel has inserted itself into the great power game uh, in a way that where for long periods of time now they've been punching well above their weight, but now it's reaching a point where really, you know, when people start talking about World War Three uh, emanating from the uh, the Gazan conflict, um, how do you see events playing themselves out now, given this background of the biblical psychopathy that you outline in this article? Well... I mean, what I came to realize, and that's maybe the, uh, the what I was trying to to uh, to the point I was trying to reach, is to realize that Israel, as we see it today, the Israel of today is actually the same as the Israel of the biblical times, 
And uh, that's something that, of course, people have a very difficult, uh, Christians in general have a very difficult time to understand because they think, no, no, Israel in biblical time was the holy people. They were, you know, the yeah. people of God and they were the only people who had a direct relationship with God. So they're, they're just a holy people. Uh, today, Israel is a, a monster, but that has nothing to do. But then Netanyahu and many Jewish uh, Israeli leaders are telling us, no, it's the same. So uh, it's important, I think, to look back into um, the the story, the biblical story, because this tells us what is the real soul of uh, of Israel. Because Yahweh, in a sense, is like the soul of Israel, and and then, of course, if you add to this an understanding of uh, the Jewish uh, influence in recent world war, then yes, yeah. you have reason to suspect that they're working on trying to to stir a new world war the big difference is that during world war one and world war two um israel did not exist as a state today israel exists as a state with a military with nuclear weapons with a strong yes. army and it makes a big difference but in a sense uh, it makes it very much more risky for them to start a world war because they will be part of it. They cannot. They have now started uh, an operation that will draw them into the war that they are, you know, that they are trying to or that they are pushing uh, the world into, and they will have difficult time to stay out of it. What they like to do is, you know, draw people to fight each other and then themselves yeah. staying out of the conflict. <laughs> And wait until uh, uh, both parties are destroyed, have destroyed, destroyed each other. But uh, now it seems like it's not going to work this way because uh, today it becomes very clear. I think it's you know, of course, not in the eyes of people who are just listening to television in the Western world, but in the Eastern world and throughout the world, I think it's become very clear how much trouble Israel is creating in the in the world, and um, you know, it's. I think people are becoming aware that uh, there's something has to be done. And uh, what has to be done, of course, is uh, uh, difficult to know. But at least, at least Israel, as it is today, cannot be tolerated anymore to, you know, to, to exist in the way it exists today. So I think uh, that's why, in a sense, throughout the tragedy that the Gazan people are living, I feel they are a little bit in the position of, uh, uh, you know, they are they are Christ in a sense, in a sense that they are being crucified by the Jewish people, by the Jewish uh, nation. But this will be a turning point because uh, they are suffering, and the injustice of what they are suffering is so obvious that. Yeah. Uh, it will never be the same anymore. You know, this is something that many people are starting to say. You know, we're really a turning point. Things are becoming very clear. And I, I uh, think my, on that point, no. sorry, go on. No, just my my own contribution to try to clarify things is to make people aware that this this is not new. This is uh, uh, something which is connected to the very nature of Israel, which is biblical. And uh, that's, that's yeah. the point I'm trying to insist on. Yeah. 
We've only got a couple of minutes to go, Laurent, and I've, I need to sort of uh, wind things down here. But I do on that on that point. What I am noticing now is a is a sense that many many Jewish people, whether they be Israelis themselves or the Jewish people living in the diaspora, are now starting to also stand up. We've seen a number of demonstrations, I think, in New York particularly. Do you mm. see uh, that being uh, uh, an ongoing movement? Do you think really, it's always been my view that for Israel to really change, it's going to need and require Jewish people themselves to actually stand up and say, no more, yeah. you're not doing this in our name. What's your view on that? Well, yes, I think I agree. From time to time, I come to the same conclusion. It has to come from the Israelis themselves. And uh, anybody who is following uh, following the Israeli media can see, actually, they, they, they say things much more clearly than we do. They have much more they freedom do. if you read Aretz, for example. Yes. And so Israelis will, for example, about Kennedy assassination, I'm quite sure from what I read that many uh, intelligent Israelis know, you know, that Israel assassinated Kennedy. They have much more capacity mm. to understand the, the very nature of the leadership of their country. And uh, and so, yeah. yes, I, I agree totally. I think the, the only hope is that enough Jewish people and Israelis start to to realize and uh, to to you know to make things change change in their own countries i agree and i think yeah. it will come from israelis more than from the jewish people in america because uh, jewish people in america have are specially preoccupied with anti-semitism <laughs> which Absolutely. israelis somehow yeah. are not so preoccupied with yeah Laurent, thank you for joining us today. We have to wind up now. Uh, I've been speaking with Laurent Guino, a French author and filmmaker. You can find his work on the UNS Review, uh, which I highly recommend that you chase up, unsreview.com or just uns.com. Laurent, once again, merci for joining us today. It is greatly appreciated, and I'll look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thanks for joining well, thanks. us. Thank you very much, Greg. I enjoyed it.